Welcome. You're listening to The Sanctuary Podcast with Pastor Tullian Chavidjan. If you'd like to learn more about The Sanctuary, visit our website, thesanctuaryjupiter.com. For those of you who don't know what I've been preaching, uh, because maybe you haven't been here, uh, we've been <laughs> making our way. It. We've been making our way through the Book of Job uh, and looking at uh, the subject of suffering in some general ways and also some very particular ways. Uh, and I will say this: you know this that Job is the book of the Bible I have preached through the most. <laughs> Uh, it in was your preaching career, in not over just the, here at the no, 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 no. This is the first time I've preached it here, but uh, and each one is different because each each time I've preached it, it's come at a different time in my life, at a different season. But this Job is the very first. Uh, well, let me put it this way. I had preached a handful of one-off sermons in my college years and uh, and even in my graduate school years. Uh, but it was during graduate school that I was asked by the church that I was serving at the time. Uh, I was going to school and also serving part-time at a church as a youth pastor, and the pastor was going to be out for three weeks, and he asked if I would fill the pulpit for three weeks straight, which I had never done before. And so as I was trying to figure out what to do and what to say, um, I decided that I would preach through the book of Job. So the book of Job is the very first book of the Bible I ever preached through. And the first time I did it, I did it in three weeks. It's unbelievable. Uh, 42 chapters, three weeks. Um, That's not what we're doing now. Um, But yeah, so I have enjoyed it also. I think the subject of suffering is constantly relevant. Well, and on that note, I'll start with my first question. Um, we just had Thanksgiving, so we're, we, we're officially in the holiday season. And I really was thinking about uh, the connection between Job, the book of Job, and how it is uh, ushering us into this uh, season of, you know, Christmas, Thanksgiving, holiday season, and how um, acutely aware people become because they have perennial suffering. They, they have things that they suffer with all year long, but the holidays can exacerbate those things that they suffer with during the year. Um, or if something is going on or was going on in September or October in their lives, and it's not something that they're, they suffer with year round, but it can be exacerbated. It can be inflamed during the holidays. And so just share, sharing, um, Job in general, the book of Job, as you've been going through the series, is really like meeting this season that's about to be really heavy for a lot of people. So um, talk about why that would be important, like what it ushers in, like why, what meets us in this holiday season? What is meeting all of our suffering? Like why do we even celebrate Christmas? Um, Because it really has to do with our suffering. Okay, so I would say... In light of your question about how the holiday season tends to exacerbate pain, um, I was uh, looking back at some stuff that I had written a few years ago, and a specific article that I called Broken Christmas that I wrote in 2017, uh, about two years after my life came crashing down um, after my wife and I, my first wife and I got divorced and uh, we had three kids together and uh, Christmas time was always really, really fun and festive. It was happy. Uh, it was joyful. Uh, there was a lot of activity. Uh, there was just, it was just a really fun time of year. I, I grew up 
as the middle of seven kids, and my mom and dad did a remarkable job of making the Christmas season so much fun with so much festivity. And so I loved Christmas from the time I came into this world. And then when I had the opportunity to uh, create traditions for my own family and create a, a context of joy for my own family, I love that even more. Watching my kids enjoy Christmas uh, was more satisfying to me than all of the Christmases I enjoyed as a kid. So when my first wife and I got divorced and our family was broken up. I went from loving Christmas to hating Christmas overnight. Hating it. Uh, Christmas 2015 sucked. Sucked. Um, it was miserable. I, I literally spent that day uh, in uh, the two-bedroom apartment I was renting in Orlando uh, at the time, I literally spent that entire day by myself. I remember sitting on the balcony of the apartment that I was renting, embarrassingly smoking cigarettes because I was depressed, and I figured that was better than, you know, getting drunk. So, uh, smoking cigarettes, uh, feeling very sorry for myself, and wondering what, did I, what I had done to my life. How has it come to this? thinking about how it was, I was not with my kids for the first time since they came into this world at Christmas time. Uh, and I, I realized at that moment that even though I had had conversations with lots and lots of people over the years uh, regarding their struggle with Christmas, maybe they too had gone through a divorce, their family had broken up, Christmas for them was always a painful season. And while I, would, while I could hear what they were saying, I couldn't feel what they were feeling because that hadn't been my experience. At that moment, sitting on my balcony uh, in Orlando, Christmas 2015, I felt everything they had felt. And I now knew for the first time in my life why the holiday season and Christmas in particular was such a painful, painful time of year for so many people. Um, it can exacerbate things like uh, families that are strained, um, Maybe it's children that you don't speak to or children that won't speak to you. Uh, maybe it's uh, a failed relationship of some sort. It's, it's, uh, it's you're maybe dealing with, for the first time, uh, a holiday season where someone you love has died the year before. Um, there's just, there are so many reasons why the holiday season tends to expose just how much pain we have inside. Um, and honestly, there are no easy answers to that. I don't know what to say other than to say, yes, it's painful, it's sad, it's horrible. Now, I will say this, okay? I'm on the other side of Christmas 2015 now. Um, and it's been really sweet to see how God, by his mercy and in his grace, has redeemed Christmas for me. It is now slowly becoming my favorite time of year again, but it wasn't for a number of years, and um, the way God has redeemed things and the way God has rebuilt things has been a remarkable act of grace. I didn't know that there could be a light at the end of the tunnel sitting on that balcony in 2015, uh, but in fact, there was, um, and I'm incredibly grateful to that, but if you're in the same place that I was in in 2015, I don't know, 
there's nothing I can say. There's no answer I could give to that kind of question uh, that would relieve you. I can just say I, I get it, uh, and it won't last forever. Uh, the, the, this sort of acute sense of desperation won't last forever. Uh, but at the same time, um, you know, I, I get it. I know what that feels like. Um, and I know what that feels like perhaps for very different reasons than why you feel that way. Uh, but I know what it feels like to have loss and regret and shame and guilt and pain and suffering at the forefront um, especially during a season like this. So I, very unsatisfying answer to your question. <laughs> I was just thinking that um, because I've had a lot of broken crystal, dozens of them um, my whole life, and just to think right now, it, it is a sweet reminder um, every year to be reminded why Jesus even came. And it was to relieve our suffering. It was to meet us in our messiness. And it was to meet those places in us that are broken and the broken world that we live in. And so although suffering in and of itself is terrible to deal with and it's hard, and um, if you're a person that is loving a person who is suffering, you know, you may not be the person suffering. But um, being there with them through this and understanding to some degree that the holidays you're like, you should be happy. It's Christmas and it's joyous and there's lots of fun things going on. Just to be, remember that you may be very close to someone that you are entrusted with stewarding some sort of love to them and care for them um, in a place that's a deep hurting place. And so Jesus is coming to us at Christmas is like such a reminder of like our suffering will end. This is not this is not heaven. This is not all there is. And um, that God's going to meet us in that. And he has in the person of Jesus. Um, and I just think it's great that Job is leaving us there at Christmas when you finish this series. And I would say all of that is true. Mm-hmm. Uh, it brings, I understand that with my head. Sitting on my <laughs> balcony, 2015, feeling very much alone, sad racked with guilt, shame, loss, regret. Cerebrally, I understood. I was a good enough theologian, a good enough student of the Bible and of Christianity in particular to know that Jesus had come and he had suffered for me and that one day my suffering would come to an end. But in that moment, that fell flat to me. Mm -hmm. Um, And so if you... The only reason I hesitate to sort of, I don't want you feeling guilty mm-hmm. for not feeling hopeful mm-hmm. this time of year in right. the context of pain. Right. Okay. I mean, there's just going to be seasons in life where, yes, God is in charge. Jesus died for your sins. One day he's coming back to make everything sad come untrue. We're super grateful for that. In the moment where you are experiencing the most acute pain, that doesn't land always. Mm -hmm. And that's okay. (laughs) The fact that it doesn't land and it doesn't make sense to your heart, even if it makes sense to your head, is okay. It's all right. There are just going to be those dark, bleak seasons where there doesn't seem to be any light at the end of the tunnel. It doesn't mean there isn't one. Mm Um, but knowing that there is one with my head is very different than feeling that there is one with my heart. And in the absence of that kind of feeling, it doesn't mean that the fact is absent. Mm -hmm. It just means that that fact isn't really helping me right now. 
Um, and, Which that and leads me into my one of my questions is is we you talk about Job at the beginning of the book of Job where he's suffered all that he has and he's praising God, but then his suffering sets in, and now he's angry at God and he's cursing. I mean, he's like he's mad, and so talk about our human nature because that's very natural for us. You know, that's not because he was all of a sudden not a Christian or didn't believe in God. Um, but it's that vacillating unbelief and belief, just like you're saying, I can believe with my head, but I act like I'm an atheist. I behave like I don't believe because of the suffering that I'm going through. So could you talk to that? Speak to that. Yeah, I think one of the most encouraging features of the story of Job is the fact that he started off strong and got worse and weaker as time went on. That's an encouragement to me. <laughs> um, I mean, I, you know, I, I think that the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 3, I've referenced this many times, uh, speaks to the progress of our spiritual lives very differently than the way we typically speak of progress in our spiritual lives. The way we typically speak of progress in our spiritual lives is that we start off bad and we end up good. We start off low and we end up high. We start off weak and we end up strong. But the way the Apostle Paul describes it in Philippians chapter 3 is that he started off strong. He started off high. He started off good. He says, man, I, if, if there is anybody who has a reason to brag about my spirituality, about spirituality, it's me. I mean, I was born a Hebrew of Hebrews of the tribe of Benjamin, which was like the premier tribe of Israel, the 12 tribes. Uh, I was circumcised on the eighth day. The law was kept meticulously. I not only understand the law and have memorized the law, but I've kept the law. I mean, as it pertains to being a Pharisee, I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. Okay, my religious resume was remarkably impressive. Um, every church wanted me to be their senior pastor, okay? Um, his spirituality was polished. But then he goes on to describe how over the course of his life, God systematically deconstructed him so that by the end of his life, he was saying things like, I'm the worst sinner that I know. That's spiritual progress, okay? Spiritual progress is coming to a deeper understanding of how badly we need grace. That's what it is. So uh, in Job's case, like Stacy mentioned, um, you know, he goes through these waves of losses in chapter one and chapter two, and his response to those losses in chapter one and chapter two is remarkable. Mm -hmm. So remarkable, mm -hmm. it's actually discouraging to me. Right. Okay? It's unbelievable. Um, <laughs> because he says things like, naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I will depart, the Lord is given, the Lord is taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord. Um, and then in chapter two, after his second round of suffering, uh, his wife comes to him and simply encourages him to curse God and die. <laughs> Sweet supporting wife that she was. Uh, his beloved. And, uh, and his response to her was, shall we accept good from God and not bad? Um, so his response in the beginning was really, really strong. It was good, remarkable, pious. <laughs> and then, as you mentioned, mm -hmm. suffering sets in and he begins to, Reality he comes out of his in. state of shock. Mm -hmm. Reality sets in. Reality sets in. He begins to calculate his losses mm. 
And that's when, for an entire chapter, chapter 3, he curses the day he was born. Which commences a conversation that lasts over 30 chapters between Job and his friends, arguing back and forth about why Job is suffering the way that he's suffering. And of course, his friends say that he's suffering because he's done something bad and God's punishing him and Job is trying to defend himself. And in the process of defending himself, he's expressing frustration with God. He's expressing anger toward God. He's expressing confusion as it regards the way God does things and why God is doing the things that he's doing. Um, And God doesn't speak up until we get to chapter 38, which we looked at last week. But I love the fact that the book of Job itself and Job's reaction to suffering itself from being good to getting bad gives us permission to do the same thing when we're suffering. You know, something tragic may happen, and instinctively, you know the right thing to say, the right thing to do. I'm going to trust God. I believe God. And then the reality of that loss sets in, and you find yourself going, hold on a second. Who are you? What are you doing? I mean, I, I get it, you know, I, I, I mean, I'm, uh, you know, this world is a broken place and I'm a broken person and I'm living with other broken people and suffering is to be expected, but this seems unfair, unjust. The punishment doesn't seem to fit the crime. I, I know what that feels like. I'm sure you do too, where you, you know, at least externally, and I got to be honest with you, forgive me for being so crass, but I'm really sick and tired of Christians who make me feel guilty for my frustration with God because they're responding so piously about stuff when bad things happen. I mean, that's discouraging. When, we're not, when death happens, whether it's physical death or the death of a marriage or the death of a relationship, when, when, when the brokenness of this world flaunts itself in our circumstances... There's nothing in the Bible that says rejoice because of that. (laughs) Nothing. We are called on to rejoice because we believe in moments that God is good and he's in charge and that one day this mess will all be cleaned up. But those moments seem fleeting when you're suffering, when you're experiencing a crucible of ache. And so um, I don't know if this is going to be one of the questions about. It is good. Um, I don't want to get ahead of myself. I, 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 you could answer all the questions before I ask the question. I told her this morning. I said, just say what is uh, suffering. Just, just, yeah, just say. <laughs> so what is suffering? And then I'll talk for thirty-five minutes, and then we'll be done. <laughs> okay. Well, you just led into this next question, which is people can, especially Christians, we have a really bad reputation of doing this and uh, looking at suffering in a very simplistic view. So we can spiritualize people's suffering. We can uh, scripture it away. We can add a prayer to it. I'm going to pray for that. I'm gonna, and um, it's just very simplistic and very shallow and very narrow-minded. Um, and very few people that have actually suffered uh, have that view. But what are some of the worst possible <laughs> things that we can say or do to people uh, especially as Christians, in their suffering, because Job's friends um, were very uh, 
religious in the sense that they were his friends. They traveled from a long way. They sat with him in silence and grieved for seven days, the, the legal time that you were supposed to do that. And then the moment they could open their mouths and it was like back to business as usual, it was like, what have you done? Like, what have you done to deserve this? It's a very, all of a sudden, these, we'll call them Christian friends, became very karmic in their belief because they believe you must have done bad, so you got bad. You must have done something, you have some unconfessed sin in your life, so you must be getting really terrible things in your life. So speak to that, how, like, as Christians, we do this all the time. So we can look at suffering very simplistically and shallowly, and we can believe all of a sudden it's a karmic thing um, so often. So let me go back to the question, which was, what are some of the worst things we can say (laughs) to people when they're suffering? Yeah. It's almost uh, easier to answer that question by talking about what you should say when someone's suffering. Um, And the short answer to that is... Not very much, honestly. (laughs) Um, Listening to someone is the best way to love them in their pain, Mm -hmm. in my opinion. And part of the reason I know that is because I know that is the way I have felt loved in my pain. Not when the person that I'm talking to is listening to me for the purpose of solving my problem or fixing me. I don't feel loved when people have tried to do that, um, and I'm sure you haven't either. Uh, people, Christians in particular, um, who not all, thank God, thank God, but many who try to immediately offer some uh, sort of spiritual solution to this deeply painful problem by, like you said, quoting a Bible verse, you know, I know things suck right now, but God's, things working all things, God's working all things out for our good and his glory, so cheer up, you know? <laughs> things uh, could be worse. Yeah. Or you thing, don't have it as bad as that person. Right. There's a lot of that. There's a lot of that that happens. There's a lot of that that happens where we, uh, we sort of uh, compare mm. this person's suffering with that person's suffering, and if this person, in our estimation, is suffering less than this person, we bring that to the attention of this person. Hey, I know somebody whose situation helpful. is much worse than yours. Um, we were watching that doesn't a, work. <laughs> we were watching a, uh, a documentary on Huey Lewis last night. Um, and I didn't know this, but Huey Lewis uh, is basically deaf now. And it's a real struggle for him, not just a struggle it's for... It's disease. Yeah, what? Meniere's. Yes, how many of you know what that is? In his ears. Nobody. Okay, two. All right. See? Uh, So, of course, Darius knows about it. He's probably done a research paper on it. Uh, So, so anyway, he's deaf, and and he's really struggled with getting deaf, not just physically, but mentally and emotionally, because he can't do what he was born to do, in his opinion. Uh, he can't perform anymore. He was very honest in talking about it. It was, and actually he said it it affected the twenty five people that work with and for him. Like now they don't have a job because right. he can't hear. But one of the things that I was hearing him do to himself toward the end of the interview was he said in those moments where I am feeling sorry for myself and I'm feeling down and low. I bring to mind all of those people that are have it much worse than I do, and they're suffering more than I have. And, and, and I'm thinking to myself, 
dude, you know that's not helping you. Mm-hmm. I mean, he doesn't, he doesn't know where else to go with that. So he sort of reverts to the one place that a lot of us revert to, even when we're counseling ourselves. Mm-hmm. And that is, well, let's just compare our pain with someone whose pain is greater, and maybe that will make my pain feel less. Never works. Never works. So that's clearly one way when we say this to one another, when we compare, and in the process of comparing, we minimize our own pain or we minimize someone else's pain. It's not only, that not only happens when we're talking to other people, but it also happens when we're talking to ourselves. And there is no one who talks to you more than you. Nobody (laughs) who talks to you more than you. Um, And so while you may get advice and counsel from people outside of you, you're counseling yourself constantly. Mm -hmm. And if you're not aware of truth and specifically the gospel, uh, you're going to counsel yourself into deeper suffering. You're going to counsel yourself into more pain, which is one of the things I said at the very beginning of this series, that we often suffer the way that we suffer because of the way we're exhorted to handle our suffering by the people around us. Well, you know, it's not as bad as this person. Or if you just try hard, if you just, if you just focus and get, you know, get sort of your mind in the right place, you can get out of this place of pain. And that stuff is never comforting, is it? I mean, that stuff has never comforted me. Um, when people say that. And so we, we counsel others, we counsel ourselves, we minimize, we compare, we moralize things like Job's mm-hmm. friends did. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think... Uh, we can the, make people think that their suffering is a sin. What? Like that just showing that you're suffering, admitting that I'm, I'm having a hard time here, I'm stuck in this place, or I'm... We, we can, as Christians, point out, like, you're, that's a sin, like you need to not do that. Like, like that. There's no place for suffering, for for the Christian. Yeah, I haven't met too many people who would be so bold as to say that. <laughs> but I will say uh, that um, it's important to remember that grief, expressing grief, is an act of worship. We typically don't think about it that way. We don't think about expressing grief as an act of worship, but it is in this sense that it is, uh, it is a vague recollection of the way things used to be before sin and brokenness entered into this world many, many, many years ago in the garden. Uh, we have what Blaise Pascal called a disinherited prince syndrome. And what he meant by that was this, that down deep inside, whether we're conscious of it or not, there is some vague, subtle awareness that things weren't always this way. Mm-hmm. And when we experience the brokenness and the pain and the suffering of this world, in those moments, we are vaguely reminded that things aren't the way they ought to be. Mm-hmm. In fact, everything is broken and it wasn't always like this. So grief is not only a vague recollection of what once was, but it's also uh, sort of an an act of hope regarding what will one day be again. Well, most of the psalms, there's so many psalms that are actually psalms of grief. And those are praise to God in those moments. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're right there for us to use in our own moments of suffering now. 
Yes, they are. Uh, and so I, I think it's important to recognize that not only does God sanction grief in the sense that he allows us to express it, he allows us to be honest about our pain. He's not, nowhere in the Bible do you find God uh, with this sort of stiff upper lip posture, suck it up and deal with it. No, nowhere. Nowhere. There's no place in the Bible that encourages us to, um, to sort of just, I don't know, pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and just muscle our way through. I, I think uh, the, the, one of the things that the gospel gives us the freedom to do, that the amazing grace of God gives us the space to do, is to uh, experience life the way it actually is and to express ourselves the way we actually feel, um, which is not ideal, okay? It's, 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 it's a realistic approach to life rather than an idealistic approach to life. It's, it's looking at life the way it is. It's looking at life internally and life externally in this world the way that it actually is, not turning a blind eye to the dark places and to the hard things, but, but looking at those things and going, this is bad. This is not good. I don't feel safe. This is scary. Uh, I'm frustrated. Uh, I'm sad. I'm confused. I'm, I don't know what's going on. I want this to stop. Whatever it is, uh, to be able to express that, to talk about that, to not only express it to myself and acknowledge it myself, but to express it to God and hopefully to a handful of people around me that are safe also. And so, um, yeah, I think the, the, the lesson that I would take for, away from how to handle ourselves and others in pain is to express it if you're expressing it yourself or to let the other person express it if it's being expressed to you. And then just to, to listen Mm-hmm. to listen. To John weep with those who weep. Weep with those who weep. John Stott said, a well-known preacher from England in the 20th century said, um, in the early part of the 21st century, said uh, that God has given us two ears and one mouth mm-hmm. so that we would listen twice as much as we talk. Mm-hmm. And then Proverbs says that where there, is, where there are many words, there is much sin and foolery. And I think that is also true. And so um, I've never felt loved by someone who's trying to fix me, ever. In fact, what has fixed me in the past has been being loved by people in my unfixed state Mm -hmm. without any attempt on their part to fix me, to make me better, to improve me or whatever the case may be. And so, um, yeah. And what about the karmic view of God versus a gracious view of him? Because his friends really exhibited more of a karmic view, even though they believed in God. Yeah. So a number of weeks ago, I mentioned the fact that not only Job's friends, but all too often our view of God tends to be more in line with karma than grace. Karma being the idea, this, this Eastern religious idea that... Uh, what comes around, goes around. comes around, goes around. Um, if, you, if you do bad things, 
bad things will come back to you. If you do good things, good things will come back to you. Now, there are places in the Bible that talk about reaping what we sow. I get all that. There are consequences to the decisions that we make. We all know that to be true, okay? Um, But understanding that there are consequences to decisions we make, both good consequences for good decisions and bad consequences for bad decisions, that's very different than having a view of God that is karmic, in the sense that God, God is doling out misery in proportion to our misbehavior, okay? Mm-hmm. That's very different. Um, grace is karma's worst nightmare, okay? <laughs> because grace says just the opposite of karma. Grace says things like the bad get the best, the worst inherit the wealth, the slave becomes a son, the whore becomes a bride. There is so much imagery in the Bible about how God turns upside down everything we think about who the winners and losers ought to be. Um, And so uh, in that sense, obviously, Job's friends had it wrong. All too often, we have it wrong. Uh, We think that if we're suffering, it's because God's getting us back. He's it's payback time. That pain is God's payback for bad behavior. That's what it is. Rather than looking at it as, I made a stupid decision, and as a result of this stupid decision, I've made my life harder, and I've made my life heavier. Okay, rather than just concluding that, we somehow project that onto God and spiritualize it into thinking, God is purposefully punishing me for this wrong act. All Listen to me. If you're a Christian, all the punishment that you deserve was taken care of 2,000 years ago. Whatever God's doing in your life, he's not punishing you, okay, for bad behavior. There was one who was punished for your bad behavior, and now you live your life under a banner that reads, it is finished. So that's good news. That does not, therefore, that does not, however, take away from the fact that Stupid decisions reap stupid consequences. And also, like, there's a caveat there for, like, natural things, sickness, um, natural disasters. I remember during one of the two hurricanes that just hit within the last few months, and one of them that hit Fort Myers, there was someone that doesn't live in in Florida texted to see if we were okay. And I was like, we were fine. We had like it, a little breeze. My ponytail kind of blew. And then <laughs> like I did, we didn't even move the patio furniture. And, um, and I, I almost felt guilty to some degree. Like, I mean, that, you know, it could have been us. But this person said, well, the favor of God was upon you. And I was thinking, well, I mean, it's always on me, first of all. <laughs> But it's also on those people where the hurricane hit. Like, to think that where it hit, like, was it not with them? It is with them. And it's the story of Joe. And it, it, just, it just kind of, like, made me a little irritated to that person. Who was it? I'm to, not to tell everybody. <laughs> so that we can spend the next ten minutes making fun of this person. Which is one of my favorite things to do. My spiritual gift. One of my spiritual gifts is making it, fun of people. It definitely is a spiritual gift for me. Um, <laughs> But I just, you know, it's such a natural human thing for us to um, think, you know, because you got a good report from the doctor this time, now you have the favor of God. Like now, because it worked out, now he blessed you. Oh, it was those prayers that you prayed. It's like, 
that that we're not we're not debating whether or not we have God's favor. Like that's not what this is about. It's about what are you going to do and where are you going to turn when life sucks, when things are messed up, when there's a hurricane, when the cancer report is not what you wish for for yourself or somebody that you love or you get really bad news. There's some woman in I think Stewart or wherever we were watching the news, Stewart or Port St. Lucie or somewhere where a woman was sitting in her living room and with her family and she got shot sitting in her living room by a a rogue bullet that came through the window from the street. So it's like, was the favor of God with her? You know, if she was a Christian, if we're talking about like did something bad happen to her in her home? Because no, it's, it's, it's so, we are so quick to think some, there must be something bad and you got something bad. We're so f- quick to do that. Yeah, obviously there are layers to this. And so the consequences that we experience as a broken person living in a broken world with other broken people may be consequences as a result of a bad decision we've made. Mm-hmm. It may be the consequence of a bad decision someone else has made that mm-hmm. we're now having to endure for mm-hmm. whatever reason, like this woman this who woman. got shot. Mm-hmm. Um, it may be the result of just the fact that, like Paul says in Romans 8, this world is uh, erupting. And it's just a, naturally, it's a broken place. There are hurricanes and tornadoes and earthquakes Disease, and volcanoes illness. and all this kind of stuff. I mean, the, the world itself, Paul says, is groaning for renewal, like a woman in labor pains. Um, and... Uh, and so, um, yeah, there are, there are layers to this. I think what's really important, and this is so, I'm going to get into this um, in the final week, but I think it's really important to point this out, that there is a difference between, um, between vertical condemnation and horizontal consequences. Okay, now this is what I mean by that, and I think this will really help you if you can sort of wrap your mind around this. Um, uh, horizontal consequences, as I've already mentioned, are the things we experience because of either a bad decision we've made or a bad decision someone else has made. Um, so I, if, if I'm driving down I-95 doing 100 miles an hour, which I do on basically a weekly basis, okay? I'm just kidding. You guys are, every time kidding. I say that, very few people laugh. He's like not, you're disgusted by my driving habits. I'm sorry to admit that I'm a sinner on the road. Uh, always have been, uh, since I started driving at 12 years old. Uh, so, but if I get pulled over going that fast and as a result, I either get, uh, a ticket or worse, if the police officer's in a bad mood, get arrested. Um, that's not the vertical condemnation of God, That's the horizontal consequences of driving way beyond the speed limit, okay? Uh, The the presence of horizontal consequences does not mean the presence of vertical condemnation, okay? Now, I will also say this, that the absence of vertical condemnation does not mean the absence of horizontal consequences, So uh, the reason this is so important is because when I look at screw-ups in my own life, it's helpful for me to be, able to, to be able to put it in the right place, to go, okay, this isn't God punishing me. This is me experiencing the consequences of coloring outside the lines. And as a result of coloring outside the lines and operating according to my own playbook, 
rather than God's, this is what happened. Now, the consequences of that kind of foolishness is not God, like I said, punishing me. Uh, In fact, my only recourse when I'm in the throes of my horizontal consequences is to throw myself back on the fact that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, that my screw-ups have not caused God to question whether he should keep loving me or not. I mean, I think we, we go through that a lot where we think, gosh, you know, God's disposition toward us changes on the daily based on how I behave. So if I'm being good and I'm being nice and I'm being kind and I'm all of those things that I ought to be, God is, you know, cheering me on and going, man, I'm so glad you're mine. And then on the days where I'm not any of those things, God's regretting his choice to love me and going, oh my gosh, man, I'm so sick of you. How many times do I have to, I mean, that's just God's, when it, this is going to sound, um, strange perhaps, but when it comes to God's emotions toward us, they are liberatingly flat Mm -hmm. in the sense that he doesn't experience an emotional high when we're good and an emotional low when we're bad. Jesus forever secured God's love for us. So that's never the question that God's delight over us and his delight in us, the favor of God does not rest on me 24-7 to the day I die because I'm favorable. It rests on me because of what Jesus has done for me. That's why it rests on me. I am safe and secure in God's love because of what God has done for me, not because of what I do for God. And he's promised that he will never leave me. He will never forsake me. I will never have to experience rejection from God the way I've experienced rejection from others because of what Jesus has done for me. So that being said, when I'm experiencing just the crap that this life has to bring on a daily basis. It's not God doling out misery, like I said before, in proportion to my sin and my misbehavior. That's not what he's doing. He's constantly smiling, constantly loving, constantly helping, constantly walking with me through the valley of the shadow of death. He doesn't promise to rescue us from it. He promises to be with us in it 70 times 7. Um, and I think that has been my deepest comfort in my seasons of suffering when I've experienced the crucible of ache in the ways that I have. It's not that, well, God, has, isn't, God is ignoring me because he isn't relieving me of my pain. That's not where I look for relief. I look for relief in knowing that God's with me in it. The absence of pain doesn't mean the absence of God. No, it does not. It does not. In fact, oftentimes, the presence of pain uh, intensifies at least our awareness of Mm -hmm. God's presence. Well, that's what I was going to ask about where I think it was two of your Job sermons ago, maybe part seven, um, where you talked about God's dreadful withdrawal. Like that when when we're in the midst of some sort of suffering or um, crisis and we feel like God isn't there. It feels like he's left the building. It feels like he's not near to the brokenhearted, um, but he is. Yeah. And, and, you know, even Job, as in the very first line of the book of Job, it says, uh, 
This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. And I mean, the whole premise was like how faithful Job was as a human, like to God and how important God was. But even he, you know, felt the absence of God. He felt like there was an absence of God um, in his crucible of ache. Yeah, the Puritans coined that phrase, God's dreadful withdrawal, those seasons in life where it seems like God is indifferent to you, that he's left, that he's abandoned you in your pain. Uh, And they weren't saying that to suggest that God actually has withdrawn, uh, but that it sure feels like he has. Uh, And... And in the Psalms, we find David and other psalmists saying the same thing. Why have you forgotten me? Why have you left me? Where have you gone? Mm-hmm. Um, why have you abandoned me in my moment of need? You know, it's that I've shared this on so many different occasions. My disdain for that uh, footprints, in the footprints in the sand poem. If you have oh, it in your bathroom, it's okay. Bless. It's okay. I used to love it. And there are things about it, of course, that are very sweet, but there's one crucial mistake about that poem. If you're not familiar with it, it's the story of a guy or a woman who has a dream, and uh, in that dream, they see two footprints in the sand, and it's God and the person. And then when this person went through a really painful season, there was only one footprint in the sand, and the person says, why did you leave me, God, in that season when I needed you the most? There's only one footprint. I was left alone, and God said, no, you weren't. It was during that season that I carried you. That's why there's only one set of footprints in the sand. Uh, uh, and it's, it's sweet and it's kind until you realize that there has only always been one set of footprints in the sand. It has been God carrying me from the moment I came into this world until the moment I leave it. At no point in time have I been standing on my own two feet. At no point in time have I been uh, able to do it on my own with God as my co-pilot. Okay, that's never been the case. Now, there have been times when that set of footprints in the sand, which belong to God, has behind it sort of this long, dredged up where he's dragging me. Claw marks. Against my will. Marks. Yes, yes. Um, Some gnashing but, of the uh, teeth. Yeah, yeah <laughs> but I, I think that it's important to remember that even when God feels far away, he's not. And, he, and he, like I said at the very beginning when we started, and I'm going to mm-hmm. go ahead and suggest that this is where we end since I just looked at the time and we're okay. done. Um, but uh, it's, it's, it's okay. I don't want anyone to feel guilty or to feel overwhelmed. This is how we tend to suffer our own suffering when we make mm-hmm. ourselves feel guilty or we feel guilty because we're not suffering as spiritually maturely as we think we ought to be. Okay? That's Okay. It's all right. Um, And sometimes knowing that God is there in our minds doesn't mean that we feel it in our hearts. And when we don't feel it, and when we feel like he's abandoned us, when we feel like he's left the building, it's okay to say that to him. My gosh, it's in the Bible, for goodness sakes. Bible writers said that to him. Um, And so it's okay to say that to him. Where have you gone? Why have you left me? And usually in those moments, God, in his very own creative and specific way, tailored to just you, will somehow remind you that he's right there. I don't know how he does it. He does it differently with different people. He's done it differently with me over the course of my life. 
But it's when I get honest with him and I express my frustration or my fear, when I express uh, just my disappointment with God. Great book, by the way, written years ago by uh, Philip Yancey called Disappointment with God. Very honest, very honest. And, um, and when we feel disappointed with God because he hasn't come through for us in the way that we want him to or the way that we think he should or the way that we think we deserve him to, um, say it. Be honest with God Even when you Jesus talk to him. It. Yeah, he did. Even Jesus said it. If there's some other the way for this to happen, Father, make it happen. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Um, in the Garden of Gethsemane. And so, yeah, I, uh, I mean, I, 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 just be honest with God when you talk to him. Just be honest with him. Be unedited, unfiltered. Don't Photoshop your prayers. I mean, he just, knows it anyway. Just, just be honest with him. If you're mad, say it. If you're sad, say it. If you're glad, say it. If you're scared, say it. It's okay. He wants your honesty. And honesty is rarely clean, and it's rarely polished, uh, and it's not very tidy. Um, God's not looking for your cleanliness. He is after your honesty. He's after my honesty, and it's safe. He's the safest person to be honest to. He's the safest person to bring all of the nasty truth about yourself to. So, um, yeah, I, I have... Uh, I've really enjoyed this series. I'm looking forward to the next two weeks concluding it. I think you're right, Stacy, that um, it's not by accident that this series is concluding at the time of year that it's concluding uh, as we lead right into uh, who Jesus is and what he has done for us, this wonderful counselor, everlasting father. Uh, as we look to that and look to him during this season uh, and we become maybe more aware than we have been in the past of our suffering, of our pain, of our weaknesses and brokenness, um, this is a time, to be, a time of year to be comforted. If you've enjoyed this message, be sure to subscribe to The Sanctuary Podcast. You can find it on all major podcast platforms. Thanks for listening to The Sanctuary Podcast.